Hey everyone, and thanks for tuning in to this week's message. My name's Aaron, and I'm on the staff team here at Eastlake. Everything we do around here depends on the generous donations of our local and online community. People just like you, who tune into these messages and see great benefit from living that idea that life is a gift and love is the point. So if you love what Eastlake is up to, we'd encourage you to contribute by going to eastlakecc.com. With that, let's jump into this week's message. Today, we hear from Kent Dobson as he shares on God in the Age of Materialism. Please check the description for links to our quarterly Spotify playlist and guided meditation. Everybody, welcome back to Eastlake. I'm Kent Dobson. Thanks for tuning in. This is my third and final contribution to this little mini series here at Eastlake. And the last two weeks, I've tried to at least host a conversation or stir the pot for a conversation around anxiety. And the first talk was called Courage in the Age of Anxiety. And the second was called Truth in the Age of Anxiety. And I could have easily called today God in the Age of Anxiety. And I guess that is a, a certain kind of backdrop. And of course, if you've been tuning in, I mean a general, by the word anxiety right now, I mean a kind of general dis-ease, a low-level dis-ease. That's like a, a stream that's flowing, but it's hard to find all the tributaries that contribute to this kind of dis-ease. And, and I think questions and ambiguity around what's true and what's good and what's moral and ethical and um, where the truth ultimately resides and awakens, of course, this kind of um, desperate, ego, egoic uh, clinging to various camps and categories and identities and so forth and so on. Um, and with that, of course, I think comes the question of the divine, the question of God. And I, for one, think the church and spiritual communities more broadly, the question of God, wrestling with God, sort of in the old fashioned sense of the Jacob narrative, where, where you move from essentially being a kind of deceiver and clinger and um, grasper at heels is what Jacob means, a kind of desperate attempt to shape reality into the way you want it to be. The wrestling match ensues with the divine and leaves us wounded in a way and limping, but in conversation with something larger than our, our too small life, we could say. And I think the church ought to, in a way, now more than ever, be really wrestling with the question of, of the divine and what do we mean when we say God? And, and the, really today's title, I'm still playing, you know, with the same theme of what kind of age do we live in? And so today I wanna to talk about God in the age of materialism. Now, right away I say materialism and I don't know, you might hear something like 
excessive, like the Gucci handbag, you know, and the alligator skin boots, I don't know, or belt buckle or something. And certainly that's a dimension. I mean, materialism has come to mean presently a kind of obsession with possessions. And, and it's not just the, the object itself, but that there's some way in which the object rep represents represents um, who I am to myself and to others. And, and I don't have to convince you that there's an absolute obsession around, around that. We wrap ourselves in um, and flags and banners and, and, um, and brands so that we're perceptible to ourselves and, and known to the other. And, and even if you think you're not playing this game, it's like a kind of like rebellious version of playing this game. So that's in part what I mean by the age of materialism, but I, but I think something more is behind that. I mean, I think probably there are two branches here of even the word materialism. And one is the philosophical, and I have to admit, I'm not a philosopher. I'm, my background is in biblical studies and religious studies. So uh, I defer to people like, <laughs> Peter Rollins, he and I could have a very interesting conversation around the question of materialism. But there is a philosophical dimension, and, and I'll just be brief about it, which is something like, only matter exists. Only the material, only matter exists. And, and, and all conversations are really a wrestling with objective matter and how matter works and and our relationship with matter, and even the little tricky, pesky little question of what the heck is matter, which on the, you know, in the, in the field of quantum physics, which of course, if I'm not a philosopher, I'm definitely not an expert in quantum physics, but the question of what is matter is giving us trouble right now. And in a way, there's like a kind of shaky corner of, of materialism. Now, what's my point? My point is that, that in the West, we've, we've been, and I, you know, I'm kind of getting sick of people saying in the West, it's like, actually we live in a global society that's deeply influenced by Western values, but Eastern values are also present too. The world is mixed up in a way, probably it's never been so mixed up, but traditionally we, we talk about the West as being the, the seat of the enlightenment and coming up out of Greek philosophy and medieval Euro European monastic scholarship really, uh, which was the, the the on-ramp to the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment certainly is concerned about the material, the material world, the scientific rubric through which we come to relate to matter and to define matter. And, and much of the Enlightenment, as you know, has been to, to drive out superstition. And, and I'm a fan of this, you know, I, I don't want to believe things that are false. You know, I, I don't want to operate inside illusions. And and it's taken great joy and pride in sort of reducing the world down to matter. And, and even if you think about yourself as being a spiritual person and believing in the so-called supernatural, and most of the time, I think our ordinary day world psyches, egos, um, operate inside the world of what's material, you know? I mean, think about the, the, the contemporary craze uh, around uh, psychedelics, for example, and. That's a whole complex conversation that I don't want to have right now. But you know what we do in the West, of course, is is pluck it from its uh, sacred context, and you know, five thousand years of 
or 20,000 years or 50,000 years of being inside a religious container um, with rules and boundaries and borders and, and we extract out of it. This is the extraction economy at work. This is um, the colonization mindset and we colonize the chemicals and we say, well, we're now we're gonna run it through a scientific lens and we see how it works in the brain and we're gonna do, you know, objective scientific studies and prove this or that. We do the same thing with the meditation and yoga. And I'm not against these things. I'm, I, I'm really not. I'm saying the scientific lens is here to stay. It's influenced us. And, and it feeds what we would think of as just ordinary cultural materialism. Because if all there is is matter, you know, that pesky question of the divine and the transcendent that's hovering in the background, it's like, well... You know, I can pay lip surface to belief in God, but really at the end of the day, I'm going to get all I can, you know, and I'm going to wrap myself in things that I saw be perceptible to myself and, and, um, and, and everything seems to operate in, in the world of possessions and the consuming of possessions and the consuming of experiences and, and very tactile, tangible things. And let me add one other detail while I'm just kind of riffing on materialism. And, you know, I'm not asking you to, I'm not pretending to be an expert on this. This might awaken your own ideas and questions around this very thing. So I'm not acting like an expert here. I'm certainly not. Just poking the bear, I suppose. Um, but if you take, we live in a, on a funny world, a funny world right now because, you know, we want what's objective and verifiable and also, we live in a very me-centered culture, and almost the thing you can never question right now is someone's thoughts or feelings or subjective experience. Well, I just think or I just feel that such and such and such and such. And right now we're even tentative to say, well, your you know, feelings are fickle, and, and just because your, your, your experience is you're interpreting your experience in a given way doesn't mean that um, that's actually the case. And we, we don't want to challenge that right now. And so what does that have to do with materialism? Well, it's almost in a way, I'm being a bit simplistic, but it's like, I'm actually having this feeling. I know I'm having this feeling. It's the ultimate ground on which I stand. And it's even though it's subjective, I'm feeling it, it, it feels real and concrete. It's material. I'm having a somatic bodily experience right now. Definitely real. Definitely cannot be questioned. It's a kind of materialism too, in a way. So I guess that brings me to the question of God. Why would we wrestle with God? I mean, I think the tendency is even with words like higher power or something like that, it's like, I'm sure something's going on that I can't, I can't see. And, and, um, but you know, back to, back down here on earth, give me the tangible and the tactile and, and th these are the grounds of things like humanism and so forth. So, um, why should we wrestle with the question of God? And maybe I, I'm going to define not that I'm asking you to, to buy my definition, but I ought to be clear, try to be clear about what I'm, what I'm attempting to say here. So when I use a word like God, uh, I mean something like 
ultimate reality, whatever that is, whatever is ultimately real. And you could right away ask the question of, is what's ultimately real material or immaterial? What's the relationship between the two? But I do mean ultimate reality, what is ultimately the case, which seems to be, as far as I know, outside of my own ego's capacity to grasp or understand. You know, um, Evelyn Underhill, she wrote a, a really well-known scholarly, it's not just scholarship, sort of a mixture of scholarship and personal experience called mysticism. And I, I suppose you could say she was one of the first people to track the question of what is a mystic or what is a mystical experience. And it's quite surprising what she says. I think a lot of people claim to be, quote, mystics um, are, are not in any sort of traditional sense. It's back to that me first experience. Well, I just feel, I just feel I'm a mystic. I just feel I'm a contemplative, okay. Um, but anyway, that's, that's a total aside. Um, she calls God reality with a capital R. And I think, yeah, that's something like that. And Richard Rohr likes to call God mystery with a capital M. Those are pointers. And even the word God is a pointer to what is ultimately ineffable. All the mystical traditions in the various um, spiritual and religious, um, I don't know what you would call it, postures or groups, seem to agree on something like that. Whatever it is that we're trying to name is will always remain out of our grasp, and, and we call that God, we call that God. And somehow, it's both known and unknown. It puts us right in the midst of a paradox. I suppose there's a difference between a contradiction, contra, two separate things, diction, really comes from language, sounds contradictory. A paradox is to set two things alongside one another. That's what para, like a parable, putting something alongside something. And dox, where we get words like orthodoxy, means straight. And it's kind of like saying they're both straight and true, but they seem in contradiction. So we call that a paradox and, and I think we can say with a fair amount of certainty, if we're gonna have the question about God in the age of materialism, we're gonna to have to wrestle with some paradox. And so that's kind of the, the terrain I wanna wander in today. And at the end, I'm gonna read another section from Thomas Merton. I've been pretty into him lately. I had a dream not that long ago. And the dream was, was kinda, of, you know, I'm not sure what to make of it, but I was told by a dream character that Jung only read the classics. And I don't know why, I woke up and I thought, I'm gonna read the classics. And I started with St. John of the Cross. I just kind of looked at my own bookshelf. What have I not read? And, and then I moved on to Thomas Merton. I think Thomas Merton is a classic. Um, he's definitely the most prolific religious writer of the 20th century, in, in my view. And one of the most influential, even though sometimes he's, he remains a bit hidden in the background. He's a Cistercian monk who lived in Kentucky. He was born in France, but lived in Kentucky. And, died in the 1960s and at the same time was, you're not sure if you're, you're reading something akin to Bob Dylan or, or Aquinas or a desert father. You know, it's like he's, you know, moving in and out of, uh, I guess he's hard to pin down, I should say. And, and I love that kind of voice. Those are what I, I like to call the ancient voices. And I think we need the ancient voices who are echo echoing down the canyons of time and, and, and feeding us um, 
bread that does not rot, to quote from Isaiah. Anyway, that was a long-winded way of saying it. I'm going to read some Thomas Merton at the end around the question of God and what the contemplative experience, which I think is available to all of us, what the contemplative experience might lead us into around the question of God. And he's got some troubling and, and also very encouraging things to say along these lines, and I think also surprising. Okay. Now, God in the age of materialism. Let me just pick on one thing, and then I want to talk about the religious instinct. So, I don't know if you've seen those signs that say, I believe in fill in the blank. And one of them is, I believe science is real. And first of all, I don't know why that makes me laugh. I guess because, you know, if you saw, if I just substitute one word, I believe God is real. And if I put that on a, on a sign and put it in my eye, you'd be like, fundamentalist, what a dork, you know, or whatever, you might not say it. Who uses that word anymore? I don't even use that word. Um, but... Yeah, you'd say, oh, pff, definitely a fundamentalist, but I believe science is real. It's like, okay, what? But what's my point right now? That's a religious statement. That's a statement of faith. I believe. It's like, th that's how the Nicene Creed begins. I believe in one God, the Father. I believe science is real. And, and that is, I think, a summary of saying, I'm a materialist. And the way in which I come to understand matter is the scientific rubric. And totally awesome, not against these things. It's still a belief system. And that phrase is revealing, I think, of something important in our culture. And, and it's a religious statement in this sense. It has to do with the real. What's, what is ultimately real? That's what what I was playing with when I, with my definition of God. What is ultimately the case? What is ultimately real? What is reality with a capital R? R, well, I believe that whatever is material is, and I believe science is real, and I believe science is, is um, the liturgical orthodoxy that guides me into what is ultimately the case. Now, thank God we have science. Again, don't, don't hear me tossing it out. But I start to wonder, hmm, okay, so we're playing the religious game. Why are we playing the religious game? And, and, and so, okay, here's point number one. All that was introduction, I guess. Point number one for your consideration. This also comes from Jung. So Jung claimed that, that human beings have a religious instinct. What a concept, first of all. Just chew on that, a religious instinct. Now, what he means by instinct are things like sex, food, clothing, shelter, fight, flight, freeze, religious instinct. It's that far down, that base, that elemental inside the human psyche. And, and so here's some evidence for that. Every single culture we know of that we've had access to their literature and their traditions and their maps and models and images and metaphors and every single one we've encountered is, is um, religious to a certain extent. There's some relationship with the transcendent, with the divine or the gods, something outside of that the, the human ego, we would say to use contemporary language, um, that transcends our own ability to understand it, i.e. God or the gods. 
And I think that's a that's that in enough it's in and of itself is is enough of a claim or enough evidence I think to to take the claim seriously. Yeah, okay, that's true. Every single culture there's there's some kind of religion or spirituality that posits a divine being um, or a god or the gods and and why is that the case and and so so I might say the religious instinct is toward a relationship with the transcendent toward with what is ultimately true about the world. It, that's the instinct. It's like, I want to be related to something larger than my own subjective experience. Uh, and it's a kind of pull, it's a magnetic pull. And it's instinctual, that's what's interesting about it. So, if you take something like, um, imagine no religion, you know, this sentiment from John Lennon, and, you know, well, what's funny about that is if you put a hundred thousand people in a stadium and you play that song and they all, well, these days hold up their cell phones for a light instead of the old, old fashioned lighter, you'll have a religious experience. Like the very claim, imagine no religion is embedded inside a song and embedded inside a culture and embedded inside human beings with a religious instinct, and it's gonna find its way. It's why people are moved by, why they, why they might cry at a song like that, because it wakes up the religious instinct. But the idea is somewhat naive. Imagine no religion. I mean, I understand, like, he's basically saying, don't quit, you know, quit fighting. All right, fine, good, good thought. But you can't just drop religion like that. Believe me, I've tried. It's especially if there's such thing as a religion, religious instinct, it's gonna come out one, in one way, shape, or form, especially in an age of anxiety, and especially in an age of materialism where we want something concrete. So we're feeling that disease. That's why ideologies and groups are so magnetic right now. It's like, yes, that. These people are telling the truth, unlike those people, and interestingly enough, our impulse toward the transcendent, toward what's true, what's ultimately the case, the religious instinct, wakes up and gets kind of hungry. And it's a simple way of saying an ideology can channel the religious instinct toward, toward its own aims. And that is the definition of American culture right now. Both the left and the right, maybe unknowingly, are playing with the religious instinct with their claims. And that's why people become so fiercely and passionately gripped by an ideology, an idea, a political stance, no mask, no mask, whatever, you know, you know the deal, fill in the blank. It's why, why I can be gripped by it. I, I, you can't, it's like, just like you can't suppress your most basic, basic instincts. You can try, but they're gonna leak out sideways. Well, that's kind of what happens with the religious instinct. And so fundamentalism is on the rise right now. There's not a lot of nuance. And so I have a very long-winded way of saying we live in a very religious culture, even if on the surface people are going around saying I'm, I'm spiritual but not religious. And they can be very much religious zealots around that claim, I'm spiritual but not religious. Or they can find themselves caught up in mob activity around social justice or around whatever and, and be surprised by their own zealous and blind actions. You know, how did I end up here? It's like, hmm, well, because we're 
we all carry a religious instinct. And so now, one of my points I might say is, okay, fine. Um, we have a religious instinct. And, and so I think the, the church and spiritual communities and spiritual teachers ought to, to acknowledge that's the case and say, all right, we need a kind of humble relationship with this powerful, instinctual reality that we all share as human beings. We need some caution and, well, I guess some humility, like T.S. Eliot says, you know, humility is endless. And that's the right kind of pill to swallow uh, when it comes to our fervor around this stuff. So, um, okay, that's my first point. Hey everyone, it's Kristen. Just wanted to take a moment to say thank you for tuning in. I hope that you're finding these messages helpful for you in your everyday life. Um, that's what we're trying to do here is gather around the idea that life is a gift and love is the point and let's give ourselves ways to move forward in that in our own everyday world. Um, so I wanted to take a moment to say thank you for being a part of this community. To those of you who have participated and given financially, we wanna say thank you to you. Everything that we do here happens because people make contributions. People say, I value this place. I want it to exist for me and for other people. And so I'm going to support it. And so we just want to say how grateful we are um, that you do that. And for those of you who maybe haven't had a chance to contribute yet, um, we would ask you to consider maybe doing so. If you find this place beneficial, if you find these messages helpful for you, then um, consider joining us in that way. You can go to eastlakecc.com to make a contribution. Um, and we just always are thankful for the people who want this place to exist. So thanks again for tuning in, let's get back to the message. I didn't say it directly, but politics has become the new religion, really, in the United States. And in part because the traditional structures of religion are losing their power, at least for the time being, losing their cultural influence. And, you know, that some people want to celebrate that, but we also have to say, well, what, what is rising in the wake of that? You know, one of the interesting things about, this is, this is an aside, but let's take church at its best. I can't believe I'm even arguing this in, in a way because I thought, you know, I've let all that stuff go and there was a time period in my life when I, I thought that was the case. And, but let's just say once a week you gathered together and let's just take the person of Jesus and you're, I'm in, these are, this is my language, and you're confronted by the reality of the Christ symbol. And I say confrontation because every single story, every single parable um, is a, can be and often is an arrow right through, right, th right into the heart at times. And certainly, at the very least, challenges our assumptions, challenges our ego, our conscious waking perspective on life. And if you get together once a week to be challenged, and the funny thing about Jesus, just in a very plain, plain way, and I'm going to use some exaggerated and sort of anachronistic language here, but he doesn't let anybody off the hook, right or left. He doesn't. And you, you're confronted by that weekly, that's a third way given the, the, the present dualisms. So let's take Jesus out of it and say, imagine no religion. Well, 
What do you have in its wake? Well, the dualism. We, we don't have a third other oftentimes. Even if you sit in meditation and practice yoga, have your own private spiritual disciplines, which I'm not against, there's not that confrontation that's really happening. And, and um, so in that sense, what we believe politically becomes a kind of new fundamentalist doctrine. And that's scary terrain. And spiritual communities and churches ought to be saying, wait a minute, this is not, this is not good. And this is not gonna end well. Okay, now, so what happened to God? <laughs> Which is kind of a funny question. What happened to God? Well, sometimes I like to imagine um, God, the, or the conversation around, around God, slipping in and out of um, consciousness, or even slipping in and out of imagery. Like the moment there's something that's constellated, uh, the wind blows and messes up the stars, you know. And maybe that's the, the great evolution of the divine that seems to be happening. And from the human perspective is certainly our experience. The moment we think we have something, it slips through our fingers, and, or it certainly happens from a generational point of view. And, um, but to be more specific, what happened to God? Well, partly what I'm Partly what I was saying about the age of materialism and materialism as a philosophy and the scientific rubric, like we bend to space, we never bumped into God, you know, you didn't, you know, the, the brand new um, sort of jaw-dropping images of space, you know, it's not like we get a more powerful telescope and then we see heaven, you know, or something like that. We sort of, we're, we're more disturbed the more, the, the more information about the universe we begin to uh, integrate and assimilate, the more disturbing it is. Like, what do we mean by God anymore? What do we mean by up or down or God is up there? You know, something like that. These, these work on us and put pressure on us and, and lead us to, to question things like, well, what do we mean by God? Now, Nietzsche, which I, I don't want to get into Nietzschean ideas because I'm also not a, uh, an expert in that, but of course he's known most famously for saying God is dead. And you should read the passage yourself. And it's a really a parable. And what's interesting is that a madman is the one that's announcing that God is dead. And the archetypal madman, the trickster, the wild one, the one cast out is often the truth teller. And what's interesting about the parable is that the madman is, is yelling at sophisticated, educated people who already don't believe in God. And he's saying, God is dead and we have killed him and there's not enough water in the, in the world to wash away the blood from our hands. Now that's pretty powerful. And they laugh at him, they laugh at him. And, and I think an overly confident materialistic posture laughs at such a thing like, you know, a silly old man going on and on about we've killed God. Aren't we just over that? And so then the madman concludes, he's like, well, maybe I'll go to the churches and they'll listen. And that's where Nietzsche drops the parable off. And we don't know. We don't know what the madman's experience is in the churches. But I feel like that's the right kind of move. Right now, we need a madman inside spiritual communities yelling at us, we've killed God. 
and there's not enough water to wash the blood off our hands and let that kind of prophetic um, prophetic, mystical, strange and wild voice in, into our egoic posture, into our world. Yeah, let's be confronted by this. In what ways have we enjoyed the killing of God and, and um, how would we relate now to God? Can God die? Of course, that's a, a fair enough question. And that's right at the heart of, of the Christian narrative. But certainly, I think many of us would agree, our images of God, our ideas of God, our precious held longstanding beliefs about God have either been just taken from us or we, have, we carry severe doubt and even cynicism about them. And in that sense, it feels like God is dead. And our fathers and forefathers and, and we ourselves have had a hand in taking the life of this deity. And so, one of, by the way, one of Nietzsche's points is that this is not going to be good for the world because we're deeply ethical and moral beings. And, and, and if there's not a kind of, of structure of values, we're going to be in deep trouble. Now, he has sort of asserted that we need to invent a system of, of values. This is where he parts with Jung, at least to a certain extent. But that's not something I want to get into right now. So let me just say it more, more simply. Our images of God don't seem to work anymore. Well, that seems true. And at the very least, they seem kind of silly if we find ourselves defending them. And, um, meanwhile, give us something concrete, like something to protest and some political thing to be for or against. That we can handle. Okay. So that was point number two, what happened to God? Point number three, and then I'm going to read some Merton. What if collectively we're entering a kind of dark night? And here I'm borrowing from St. John of the Cross. So St. John of the Cross says there's, there can be a time in the life of, of a seeker, of a spiritually minded person, of a, of a religious person, one who would like to align oneself with ultimate reality, even if there's a question mark there. So what can happen is that God, this is a quote from, from St. John, he says, God begins to wean us from God. Now, right away, let that sort of possibility arise in your field of awareness. God wean, weans us from God, which raises questions like, well, what or who is the agent at work in the death of God? Or if we are at a deep and I think anguished loss around our precious held ideas and images around the divine, who's to say that that's not the work of the divine? St. John of the Cross says that's what the dark night is. We're stripped of these things and we're stripped of our our greed around our own senses and experiences and tastes and proclivities. And now I'm really like preaching to myself because I'm, I'm thirsty for experiences and, and feeling states. And he said, even those have to go. They're impermanent, as the Buddhists would say. 
here today, tomorrow thrown into the fire. That's Jesus's line. So God begins to wean us from God. It's like, here I'll paraphrase something James Finley says. It's like, you know, God, let's just imagine God saying, hey, I appreciate you coming to me all these years and being sincerely um, genuine in your prayers and your devotion and, and to your acts of justice in the world. I really appreciate that. And, and what's great about it is, is is that you you are coming to me, but it has been on your terms and I can accept that. So I'm just wondering if you would like to come to me on my terms. And if that's the case, um, I'll have to wean you from all these other things. So not only is this possible personally, I'm making a suggestion that maybe God is weaning us from God in a collective sense. We're experiencing a collective weaning from our addiction to our own fundamentalisms. That's the thing I'm wondering. What if collectively our images and phrases and words are being taken? And how would we have a relationship then if it's not on the terms of our own ego, ego's structure and the way it thinks it should be? What kind of relationship would bubble up in the midst of that sort of devastation? That's the question, I think, at hand. Okay, let's look at Merton and then we'll, we'll be done. So, first of all, just one quick line here, because I'm interested in, in a certain, in a few sentences here, but it begins... With a, with a few thoughts on contemplation. And, and I wanna let you hear what Thomas Merton calls contemplation. He says, it is spiritual wonder. Contemplation is spiritual wonder. It is spontaneous awe at the sacredness of life and of being. It is gratitude for life, for awareness and for being. Now there's a lot more here, but just hear that in the background. So to quote, be a contemplative, I don't think, I think that's more of a modern, like you have to be something. Let's just say one experiences contemplation when they're in a space of spiritual wonder, which is fully active and fully aware that it is alive. They experience, when they experience spontaneous awe at the sacredness of life and of being, that's a contemplative state. You know, to contemplate, con means with, and, and you can hear template, you can hear temple in there. So it means it's like, being with the temple and we experience it, our experience becomes a kind of temple experience where the world is full of the sacred and I'm as the same way I might approach a mighty temple is the way I might approach a conversation with my own kid or my spouse or a co-worker or I might be utterly floored by you know, the snap of the wings of a grasshopper in a moment of spiritual wonder. And, and he's saying that that kind of contemplation is um, possible and, and necessary, I think, in a way. So, okay. Now, in case you get the wrong idea, he also says, contemplation is no painkiller. <laughs> all right. Dang it. I wish it was. All this kind of, it's all light. It's all one. It's all union. Just going to manifest this or that. You know, no, contemplation is no painkiller. Notice what he says. It's a steady, 
burning to ashes of old worn out words, cliches, slogans, and rationalizations. Now let that sink in. What presently are your worn out words, cliches, slogans, God, so many freaking slogans right now, and rationalizations. I do this because this. Well, I'm, a, I'm an Enneagram, you know, four, and therefore, you know, rationalizations, rationalizations. The worst of it is, even, apparently, holy conceptions, H-O-L-Y, holy conceptions, are consumed along with all the rest. So even your best, like, theological musings, you know, the ones that are, are so beautiful in their holiness, he says, no, contemplation is no painkiller. To be that present to the world, to live with a kind of spiritual wonder means potentially, at times, all of our slogans and rationalizations and all of our beautiful, holy ideas gone. It is a terrible breaking and burning of idols because that's what they become. A purification of the sanctuary. Here you hear him playing with the temple here a purification of the sanctuary, so that no graven thing may occupy the place that God has commanded to be left empty, the center, the existential altar, which simply, quote, is. The isness of reality is empty. There's an abyss. There's a center of nothingness, which is, which God has commanded to be left empty. Now, what a vision for what we might mean by God. What do we mean by God now? No image, no thing in particular, just an emptiness of isness. In the end, the contemplative suffers the anguish. It hurts. He suffers the anguish of realizing he no longer knows what God is. I'm so moved by this line because when I, I used to work at a big mega church and, and I was going through, you know, a significant rite of passage and transition in my own life, so to speak, and, and I felt I could no longer do it. And one of the things I said in my final talk was that I don't know what I mean by God anymore. And, and I meant that genuinely, seriously, and with some grief. And to hear him say, well... That's what it's like at times. Sometimes God wins us from God and we have to experience the anguish of no longer knowing who God is anymore. He may not actually, okay, he, the contemplative, the person, the human, he may or may not mercifully realize that after all, this is a great gain because, quote, God is not a what and not a, quote, thing. So back to the conversation about materialism. Well, God is not a thing. It's like, does God exist or not? You know, like a thing exists. Like, well, does an apple exist or not? Is it made of matter? Is God a thing among things? If God is a thing among things, then we're having a conversation about the existence of things. And Merton is saying, yeah, that's the wrong kind of conversation. God is not a what or a thing. That is precisely one of the essential characteristics of the contemplative experience. It sees that there is no, quote, what that can be called God. There is, now listen to this, he's a, a Cistercian monk writing. There is, quote, 
no such thing as God. Because, because God is neither a what nor a thing, but a pure who. And here's where this influx of mystery and wonder is infusing, I think, his words here. It's inviting us out beyond the limits of our own ego stance, our own persona stance, the things that we cling tightly to. God doesn't exist. He's not a thing. He's not a what, but a who. Okay. He is a thou. He's sort of alluding to Abraham Heschel, I think, here. He's a thou before whom our inmost I springs to awareness. So the I that's doing all the claiming and believing and, well, it's springing into a kind of awareness before the thou, the who. He is a, quote, thou before whom our inmost I springs into awareness. He is the I am. He's alluding to the conversation that Moses had with the divine. I am that I am. He is an I am before whom with our own personal and inalienable voice, we echo, I am. So it's no longer, I think, therefore I am. It's something like the experience we are having as I am is contained in the I am. There's a dependent co-arising of isness that is the experience of God, but not as God as thing or objects or even other in the way we usually use the word. So talk about dropping us off here into a sea of possibility, into a sea of wonder. So you might ask yourself, okay, God in the age of materialism here, you know, what are we, what are we supposed to do with these musings and these wonderings by Thomas Merton here, the mystic? So I might suggest very, one very small thing which is something like this. What would it be like to allow our own stripping of categories and phrases and slogans and belief in God or I don't believe in God just to loosen our grip, to allow ourselves to be confronted by the isness of reality? reality with a capital R, to slip into a kind of humble and spiritual wonder, to carry a posture, which I think fundamentally is a religious posture, a prayerful posture. What we need now more than ever is a kind of prayerful posture rooted in wonder, rooted in the wonder of reality itself. And we might begin to wonder, maybe all this stripping is a kind of mysterious gift. That's what Merton is suggesting that the stripping, the stripping off and the burning of our own idols is a kind of mysterious gift to which we can only consent. Consent to the painful and beautiful process of allowing our own ideas of God to be um, burned to ash. Yeah, and I'm saying more of that in the age of materialism. And the moment that begins to happen, if our, our own images of God can be burned to ash by the, by the divine, by the mystery of the I am, it, you better believe everything else in the, quote, material world that is supposed to be giving us a sense of identity and meaning will lose its power. 
and more of that, at least in my view. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for joining us. To make a donation, head to eastlakecc.com slash donate.